So let's generate our motivation and reflect that we have been the recipient of an incredible amount of kindness from the day we were born. And although we have received harm, if we put, if we compare the amount of harm we've received from others to the amount of benefit we've received, there's no comparison because we wouldn't be alive now without the aid of others. And when you think about it, all of our unhappiness actually stems from our own negative karma, our own mind. So even when other sentient beings happen to be the conditions of our unhappiness, it's not suitable to blame them for it. Because the ultimate root is our own ignorance. And in fact, sentient beings have been so kind to us this life, previous lives, and will be in future lives. And so with that in mind, it only makes sense that we reciprocate. And the best way to reciprocate is to make ourselves more capable of being of long-term benefit to them. Short-term benefit is good, but it doesn't last long. It doesn't have much of an impact. It's here and gone. But to try and have long-term benefit, that involves really rooting out our own afflictions and developing all of our good qualities infinitely. And so let's make that determination to do just that so that we can repay the incredible kindness that others have shown to us. I forgot to mention this morning when I was talking about the Chenrezig practice is um, to encourage all of you to read the book um, Cultivating a Compassionate Heart, the Yoga Method of Chenrezig because all the explanation on how to do both the front generation and self-generation are contained in that book. And so rather than repeat everything that's in the book, um, I prefer to concentrate on teaching what's this text, the 108 Verses of Compassion, considering that we've been uh, going through it for what? Four, this is the fourth year? Um, and we're only at verse 44? Um, that it might be good to... Fifth year. What? Fifth year. Fifth year? I think we started in 2006. Exactly. Okay. So it's the fifth year. So we've gotten to verse 44. I think we'll see if we can cover some ground this year. Um, so I'm going to restrain myself and not um, uh, do a synopsis of the first 43 verses because if I did, we probably wouldn't get beyond verse 15. Um, <laughs> okay, And so that's why we had suggested that people 
um, listen to the tapes online of the previous years uh, and, you know, that you read through the text before coming here and have some preparation. Um, If you didn't have the chance to do it, you can always do it when you go home, uh, you know, and then that will help you really understand the the teachings better because this is quite a beautiful text. Okay. Um, and I just wanted to make a, a comment. There's, uh, in this text, he refers a lot to uh, Chandrakirti's text supplement on Nagarjuna's treatise on the Middle Way. And he also refers a lot to Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And I remember back in what year was it? 1990-something, no, maybe, maybe 2000-and-something. Anyway, um, His Holiness was teaching Chapter 8 from um, this book in Arizona. Were any of you at those teachings? Yeah. And uh, it was my birthday during when he got to the crux of the chapter, on exchanging self and others. And, of course, nobody knew it was my birthday, but I thought it was the best birthday present I could get. So I heard today that it's somebody's birthday here, so I would like to dedicate this teaching as, uh, you know, on compassion for that person's birthday. And I'm sorry it's not from His Holiness. It's only for me. Okay. But the topic is still the same topic. Okay. So, um, so let's, we'll, we'll go over one verse <laughs> instead of starting at the beginning. Okay. Um, so, uh, verse 43, he's, uh, he says, um, beings may treat you as everything from friends to foe to neutral. Yet how wondrous that you constantly manage to think of each of them as you would your only child. So here he's talking to, he, you is, um, you know, is Chenrezi, is all the Buddhas, is the embodiment of compassion, of great compassion. And saying that, you know, other sentient beings may treat us in all sorts of ways. And it's true, isn't it? Sometimes they're nice to us. Sometimes they're mean to us. Sometimes they're apathetic towards us. Um, but what is very wondrous about a being with great compassion is that uh, they regard each of these beings as they would their only child. Okay? So... Um, I think in most societies, people value their kids. They want to have kids. They love their kids. And the most important thing they have is their kids. More important than their possessions are their kids. And, uh, and so being able to look at every sentient being, no matter how they treat us, as our uh, precious child. Okay. How many of you are parents? Yeah. You have precious children? When they're good, they're certainly... <laughs> yeah. 
No, but, but you know, there's that feeling there because this little being comes into your life, a total stranger, and they move in for who knows how long, <laughs> and you love them. Yeah? So, uh, you know, to, to be able to look on other living beings like parents do to their children with lots of love and care and affection and wanting to take care of them and give them all the opportunities that, that the parents didn't have and so on and so forth. So comparing great compassion to the, the love and, and um, an attitude that a, that a parent has for their child. Okay? And that's very different, um, you know, how the Buddhists treat all of us with equanimity, not with bias attachment and anger. That's very different than how we treat sentient beings, isn't it? Because we have lots of bias, attachment and anger. And so the people who help us, we're biased towards them. We think they're wonderful. The people who harm us, we are biased against them and we think they're disgusting. And the people who don't affect us one way or the other, eh, who cares? Okay, so that's the way sentient beings look. You know, we say sentient beings look at others, but that's not the way um, Chenrezig looks at others. Okay, so Chenrezig looks with the eye of compassion. And so think about it a little bit, you know. Can you have, do you think that you could adjust your mind so that no matter how people treated you, you could feel the wish for them to be free of suffering and to have happiness? Do you think it's possible to adjust your mind? Or do you think that when somebody harms you, the only possible reaction you could have is to hate him back and want to harm him? Is that the only possible reaction? Yeah, possible to look at them as, as you would a child with a lot of affection? Because really, when you think of it, you know, people who harm, they're very much like children. They want to be happy. They don't want to suffer. They think that doing whatever they're doing is going to bring them happiness. And because they're childish, they don't understand what the real causes of happiness are. So they do things that cause suffering. Yeah, Children do that lots of times, don't they? They think it's going to be so much fun to finger paint on the new rug. You know, how much fun we can have. Look, Mommy, Daddy, we drew this picture for you on the new rug. Isn't this fantastic? You know, and they really want you to be happy. (laughs) Yeah. And they just don't understand that the, the new rug was quite expensive and, um, you know, and the paper was better for, the, for finger painting. Okay? But you forgive them, don't you? Because they're kids. They don't know. They, they, they're confused. Yeah. So in the same way, people who harm us, they don't understand how to create the cause of su- uh, happiness and avoid the, the cause of suffering. So they do things that, you know, bring suffering, but they're trying to, you know, at least create happiness for themselves. 
Okay, so like kids. You know what I did once? (laughs) It wasn't a big deal to me, but somehow it was a big deal to my parents. They had just planted a new planter full of some plant called elephant ears. I still don't know exactly what they look like because when I saw these growing in the planter, I thought they were a weed, and so I pulled them all out as a way of being nice to my parents. But it didn't go over very well. (laughs) Okay? So there's, uh, you know, things that we do, thinking to be kind, that create problems. And so whether we do them intentionally or unintentionally, it's because of our own ignorance and confusion, isn't it? Yeah. So try and think about that in terms of the people that you're holding a very strong grudge against. Yeah. Think of them as you would a child who's trying to be happy and, you know. <laughs> and it puts a little bit of, uh, you know, chili pepper in the tea, <laughs> thinking it's going to bring happiness. I did that one too. (laughs) But not to my parents. (laughs) Then verse 44. If one's aged mother went insane under the influence of spirits, who in their right mind would see her as an enemy? How amazing that your mind perceives all beings as your kind mother. Okay, so in ancient times... Well, this text wasn't written in ancient times. It was written, I think, 19th, 20th century. Um, But a lot of times, like in Tibetan, Mongolian culture, um, harm is, you know, mental problems are said to be due to spirit harms. Okay. So here's the example of, you know, your aged mother who is very weak, who has worked her whole life, you know, tending the fields, tending the animals, taking care of the kids. And then in old age, instead of being able to relax, she has some kind of harm and she goes crazy. We might now maybe say, you know, aged parents who have dementia or who have Alzheimer's or who, you know, are completely forgetful and or, you know, have very severe mental problems. Um, If we, you know, most people, at least in traditional cultures, would look upon their their mother with kindness and have a feeling of grateful gratitude to their parents for everything that their parents did to bring them up. And so if your aged mother, who is weak and, you know, then on top of that is insane... And even though she's shouting and screaming and calling out and saying all sorts of hurtful things and crazy things, you wouldn't hate her. You wouldn't see her as an enemy because all that's in your mind is the years and years and years of kindness she gave you and to see that she's not in her right mind. You know, she has no idea what she's saying. She has has no idea what she's doing. Yeah. And so you wouldn't hate her, you would have compassion. 
You wouldn't see her as an enemy. You would see her as an object of compassion. Okay? So, in the same way, when when other beings harm us, yeah, if we could see them not only as we would our children, but as we would our parents, you know, somebody who has been kind to us for many, many previous lifetimes and now is acting in a completely insane way under the influence of ignorance, attachment, and anger. You know, they don't know what they're saying and doing. They're creating so much negative karma for themselves as well as, you know, harming others. So how can I hate them? It would be like hating and seeing as an enemy my kind mother who was afflicted by mental illness. Okay? So again, you know, can we train ourselves to see other sentient beings in that light? So instead of just seeing what they're doing now as, you know, they're deliberately harming me, to see it as, you know, here's somebody who has been my kind mother in a previous life, who is crazy under the influence of the three poisonous attitudes and is doing something only because they're trying to be happy. Yeah. And so you might still restrain them because they're doing something harmful. You might still try and stop them. But you're going to try and stop them, you know, for their benefit not because you want to hurt them and retaliate or something like that. Okay? So in the same way, you know, this is how great compassion and the great compassionate ones view others who harm them. And so to try that in our meditation, you know, you shouldn't have too much problem thinking of people who have harmed you because we tend to remember those things extremely well, don't we? Yeah, people who help us, we forget. People who harm us, we remember. Okay? So take one of those people who harmed you and think about them in your meditation and try and see them this way. Either as your child, you know, who means well but is ignorant, or as your aged parent who is stricken by mental illness or Alzheimer's. No? And try and react with, you know, have a compassionate attitude instead of a hateful attitude. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you can think of this in terms of people who harmed you personally. You can think of it in terms of politicians that you don't like, in terms of CEOs. You know, it, you can uh, do whatever it is that's bothering you, where you have the tendency to blame and despise, you know. Take those people out and and think of them in this way. Practice it. Okay? So this should give you something to think about in the times of silent meditation. So um, uh, referring here to all beings as uh, our mothers, yeah. How amazing that your mind perceives all beings as your kind mother. In the way of uh, developing bodhicitta, there's two ways. 
One is the seven-point cause and effects instruction, and the other is equalizing and exchanging self for others. So in the seven-point cause and effect instruction, okay, there it's founded on equanimity for others, and then it starts in the seven points with um, seeing sentient beings as our mother, or as, you know, to be gender neutral as our parent, yeah, recognizing their kindness to us when they've been our parents in previous lives. That's two. Then three is wanting to repay that kindness. Four is heartwarming love. Five is compassion. Six is the great resolve. And seven is, those six are the causes. And then the effect is number seven, the bodhicitta mind. Okay, so these are explained in depth in um, Geshe Jampa Tekchok's book, uh, Transforming, no, trans, Transform, yeah, yeah, I gave it the name and I can't even remember it. <laughs> Transforming Adversity into Joy and Courage. Okay, it's in chapter 10 of that book. Okay, and so, uh, you know, they say that Lama Tisha, he's one of the great uh, lamas who helped to bring Buddhism to Tibet in the late 10th, early 11th century, that, you know, he would see the donkeys or the yaks, and he would go up and pet them and say, hello, mom, you know, my kind mother, because he had trained his mind very much in seeing beyond the view of this life, you know, recognizing that we've had previous lives. We haven't always been human beings in previous lives. But whatever we were born as, when we had mothers in those lives that that required mothers, um, our mothers were very kind to us and took care of us and taught us things. And I remember one time when we were having the retreat at Cloud Mountain, that was in the days when they still had peacocks, Remember the loud, noisy peacocks that would jump on the roof of the meditation hall and go, they really, their, their, their chirp is not chirp. It's rather an unpleasant, you know, sound. Um, and they always did it in the middle of meditation to make sure we weren't sleeping. Um, so, uh, but one day uh, I was walking down and, you know, they, had put them in a little um, rooster cage or something. And uh, there was the peacock mom with her pea, pea babies. Okay, <laughs> peacock babies. Yeah. And they were so cute. And, you know, she was sitting there, you know, teaching them how to peck. You know, you peck like this. You don't peck like that. <laughs> you don't peck like this. You peck like this. You know? She was teaching them how to peck. She was teaching them what to peck, you know, so that they could get the food they needed. Yeah, And that it, then when they had all eaten, then they all gathered together and she sat on top of them to keep them all warm. Yeah, it was probably kind of a lumpy bed, I would think, <laughs> lying on top of these little, you know, pea chicks. <laughs> yeah, they got mad at you, they poked you with their beak from underneath. But, you know, the the mama peahen was just so happy. She did this, took care of her young with so much delight, you know. 
So it really made me think, you know, oh, all these sentient beings have been my mother and, you know, even when we've been animals taking care of me like that. When I lived in um, Nepal at the monastery, we had a dog named Sasha. And Sasha, she was in terrible shape. She had been in some kind of accident, so her back legs didn't work. She kind of dragged herself along on her front legs. She had maggots that were in her ear. And she had a litter of puppies. And she nursed them. She took care of them. She licked them. She protected them. She was in such misery herself. But in her mind, her puppies were more important than herself. So if we can think, you know, that that all these beings have at one time or another been our parents as human beings, as peacocks, as, you know, as dogs, and have taken care of us with that same kind of, um, you know, self-sacrificing love and affection, then automatically a feeling comes that we want to do something for them in return. Our problem here in America is that we have trained ourselves to blame things on our parents and to see our parents' faults. And I think that that way of thinking um, actually harms us. Yeah, It ties us up in knots. It makes us very difficult to be a good parent to your kids if you think of your parents as screwed up and don't like them. Okay? So, sure, our parents may be screwed up. That's nothing new. Screwed up is the definition of samsara. And it also applies to us. Okay? Everybody's screwed up. We're samsaric beings. As long as we have ignorance, anger, and attachment, we are certainly less than perfect, and we make a lot of mistakes. Nothing new. Yeah? But when all we see is others' mistakes, and when all we see, uh, when all we define as mistakes is the things that we didn't like, okay, then we get ourselves really twisted up. Because then the definition of mistake is doing something I don't like. Is that an accurate definition of mistake? Yes, you're saying it sure is. <laughs> Everybody should do everything I like. If they don't do what I like, they're a total in- imbecile. Okay. But think about it. It's not quite a good definition of making a mistake, especially if it's coming from our own self-centered mind. Is it? Yeah. And so... You know, if we can train ourselves to really see the kindness of our parents, okay, there was mistakes, okay, there was harms, but we're alive, and we're alive due to their kindness. Because if they hadn't been kind, we did not know how to take care of ourselves as infants. If people didn't take care of us when we were little, we certainly wouldn't be here today. 
Okay. So who took care of it? Us. It was our parents. Or if our parents couldn't take care of us, they made sure that there was another somebody else who did. And the proof is that we're alive. So to be able to to look at the people who took care of us when we were little with a sense of appreciation, really recalling what um, they did to keep us alive. Hmm? And to ask ourselves, were we little angels when we were little? Any little angels in this audience? who did everything mom and dad asked, even when you were a teenager? Or did you stop, like, about 12? <laughs> yeah. Even before 12? Were we perfectly good kids? Yeah. We, you know, when, you, when we look about what we did, what we made our parents go through, then we see... You know, how much they had to give up to take care of us. I mean, they gave up a full night of sleep for years without a break to take care of us. Yeah. Whereas we hate when something wakes us up in the middle of the night. And when we are short on sleep, we're completely, you know, in a bad mood and take it out on others. But here are our parents who for two years at least were short on sleep because we would wake up not once, but probably several times in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know? <laughs> on and on and on. You know? And they didn't throw something at us and say, you're disturbing my sleep. You know, they got up and took care of us and fed us. Okay? So think about it. I mean, people really went out of their way for us. And then they cleaned up after us. You know, all the times we pooed and peed everywhere at any time on anything, you know. They cleaned up all our poo and pee. (laughs) They did, didn't they? Yeah. All the times we threw up when we were kids. Yeah. All our bloody noses and our bloody knees. All of our Fs on spelling tests. And then how, how obnoxious we were as children. Now, you hit teenage years and it's like, give me the car keys and don't tell me what time to be home. And I'm going to do whatever I want as long as you do my laundry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the way we act towards our parents. They, we certainly we think that they've suddenly become our servants and... We can go out and do whatever we want. We don't owe them anything, you know. In fact, we're gracing them with our presence at the house. And we're bowing so low as to once a month take out the garbage, you know. But aside from that, everything around the house is our parents' responsibility. And I'll be the one who sleeps late, thank you very much. 
you know, and I'll go out and stay out till whatever time of day or night and not call, let, not let you know what, where I am, if I'm safe, you know. You can worry all you want. I don't care. That's your problem. We were great, weren't we? <laughs> we were really nice kids for our parents. So, um, you know, when you think about it that way and think really what they went through, how they had to work at jobs, one job, two jobs, three jobs, you know, just to earn money to feed us. Did we say thank you? No, we said, I don't like this. I want McDonald's. Don't give me strain beans. (laughs) So, you know, you really think what our parents had to put up with, the stress and the aggravation and the worry, not knowing where we were, if we were safe, what we were doing, putting up with our talk, talking back. Yeah. And so, you know, and they did this in so that they could teach us how to, you know, become adults that function in society. So, and if they didn't take care of us, no, we, we certainly wouldn't be able to function as adults, would we? I mean, we're barely able to now. <laughs> I'm joking. But, you know, um, you know, but we really see how much our parents did for us. So I think if we feel that sense of gratitude towards our parents and then think that all other beings have been our parents, at one in one lifetime or another in the past, then when we look around at the different beings we encounter now, instead of just seeing them according to the appearance they have taken this life, instead of just seeing them as the karmic bubble that they manifest as this life, to see them as somebody who's been kind to me like, my parents have been kind, who's been kind to me as a parent in previous lives, and who will continue to be kind to me in future lives. Okay? So it's a way of training our minds, of pulling ourselves out of the whole Freudian thing of, you know, I'm so screwed up because of what my parents did. Yeah? and instead really appreciating what they did, and see, gee, I'm so great, I can function because of what my parents did. And um, I feel gratitude and appreciation for them. Okay? So I think this meditation is very, very important to do. Lots of people don't like it. Oh, I don't know that everybody's been my mother... You know, even if they were, they've harmed me more than they've helped me. Yeah. But we have a lot of resistance to this meditation. But I know for myself as one that it was really by doing this meditation that I began to uh, deal in a helpful way with a lot of my problems. Yeah. It was only when I changed my view towards my parents 
that I let go of a lot of very unproductive emotions. Okay? So I really recommend trying this meditation. Not just once, but many times. And when memories come of, you know, mistakes that your parents made or harmful things they did, you know, see them as your aged mother who was delirious or as your young child who, you know, is stricken by illness or confused or whatever. Okay? And do this kind of meditation for a long period of time and see what its psychological effects are on you, you know, as well as your spirit, as, as well as its spiritual effects. Okay? So, you know, then when we see the kindness of others, then it's very easy to have love, heartwarming love that sees them as lovable, wants them to be happy. You know, it becomes much easier to have compassion that wants them to be free of suffering. Yeah. And then based on all of that, we develop the great resolve that we are going to actually help them to have happiness and help them to eliminate their suffering. So we have that very strong resolve to put into practice our love and compassion, not to just sit by the, you know, sit on the seashore while somebody's drowning in the ocean, saying, oh, what a pity they're drowning. Somebody else go save them. But, you know, having a great resolve of, you know, I'm going to go save them. But if we don't know how to swim ourselves, then we know that we can't, so we have to improve ourselves, learn how to swim, so we can go in and save the beings who are drowning in the ocean. So in a similar way, you know, as long as our own minds are under the influence of ignorance, anger, and attachment, it's going to be very difficult to lead others on the path and to really be skillful and subtle uh, in our ways of benefiting them. And so that great resolve then leads us to generate the bodhicitta, the, you know, aspiration to become a fully enlightened Buddha for the benefit of all beings. Okay? So that's that seven-point instruction on on, uh, generating bodhicitta. In brief. But meditate on it. Yeah? Okay, verse 45. The fact that the Buddhas remain in the world, teaching the path to liberation as they see fit, both day and night during the six times, that is your kindness, the wide eye of compassion. So here, comparing compassion to an eye, you know, and we see when we visualize Chenrezi, you know, not only... 11 heads, each with three eyes, two eyes and then the central eye. But in the palms of each uh, hand, there's also an eye. So reaching out like this, completely wide open to sentient beings, looking at them, you know, looking at their suffering, wanting to embrace them, wanting to lend a helping hand. Yeah. Or the eye of compassion. We often have the eye of 
self-pity. <laughs> Instead of looking out at others, we look at ourselves and, oh, poor me, poor me. Okay? So really, you know, when you're doing the Chenrezig practice, thinking of the symbolism of the eyes, looking it out at sentient beings, and looking out at sentient beings with affection, with acceptance, with compassion, and without fear. Okay? So when, when the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas look out at us limited beings and see us, you know, creating the cause of misery even though we want to experience happiness. Okay? They, and when they see us experiencing all sorts of incredible sufferings in cyclic existence, they aren't afraid. Okay? How do we often react when we see others suffering? Sometimes it's hard to see, isn't it? Watching others suffer, is, it makes us quite afraid. Because I think it brings home to us the fact that it could be me. So lots of times, you know, suffering, ugh, you know, we turn away, we don't want to look at. Yeah? So when you think of how bodhisattvas and Buddhas are, not, they don't feel that kind of fear of looking at suffering. They're able to look at the suffering of sentient beings and be fearless because they know that that misery can be ended. Okay? They know that whatever suffering sentient beings experience, it's due to causes and conditions. And the principal cause is ignorance. And ignorance, because it misapprehends how things exist, can be eliminated. Okay? So in seeing that, that misery is not a given, the, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are always hopeful you know, they aren't terrified of suffering. Yeah. They, instead, what they do is they try and help and try and eliminate it. And not just eliminate the suffering, but especially eliminate the causes of suffering. Because the thing is that once a karma, once a cause of suffering has ripened or is ripening and producing its effect, it's very difficult to stop. Okay? The time to purify the karma is before it's ripened. Yeah? Because when the karma has the mo- you know, the causes and conditions have come together and a karma is ripening, you know, over time, there's so much momentum there. Yeah? That it's hard to stop. It's like when you're going down a, uh, a ski hill at a fast speed, you know, and there's a tree right there, it's really difficult to avoid it. Yeah. So the time to avoid it is before there's so much speed and before, you know, you're so close to it. So the time to purify the karma is in, is in advance. Yeah. So the Buddha's are trying to help us, first of all, purify the negative karma we've created. So stop 
the, you know, from ripening the causes of suffering. But also they're trying to help us not create those causes of suffering to start with. You know, and we create the negative karma by means of our own afflictions. Okay? Jealousy, arrogance, laziness, revenge, all these kinds of things. That those are the mental states, the mental factors that, you know, make us do negative actions. And so they try and teach us how to manage those mental states and then how to cut them off completely so that we stop creating the karma that brings about our own misery. So that's how they help us. And they know that it's possible to eliminate that ignorance and the afflictions and the karma. So they are full of energy to do that. They're not discouraged. They're not afraid. They're full of energy. Let's go! You know? So I see that in one of my teachers who, once he starts teaching, has a hard time stopping. You know, because he has so much enthusiasm to help us, even though we're all like this. You know? That you really see the force of compassion. Okay. So here it refers to the um, teaching the path to liberation in the six times. So they often talk about three times in the day, three times at night. Some of you do the six-session guru yoga. It's the same idea. So it's um, before dawn, then um, between dawn and midday, and then between midday and dusk. Those are the, you know, the three daytime ones. Then um, the early evening is one, another one of in the nighttime. The period, um, wait a minute, did I get three? One, 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 two, six times, I'm getting five. Okay. Oh, yeah. Then, okay, then you have from like um, six to ten, from ten to two, so over midnight, and then from two to six. Right, yeah, every four hours is a period. So that's the meaning when it talks about the six times there. Okay, then verse 46, we are moving along here. And when someone shouts with a lion's roar, I am the refuge of all beings who lack protectors. That is your magic, the noble tongue of compassion. So in the previous verse, yeah, the compassionate one that we're talking about, the eye of compassion here, the tongue of compassion, comparing to another body part. Okay, so it's shouting the the roaring, the lion's roar. Yeah, I was reading on one of the the chocolate bar for, forms. You know the the chocolate bars where they they sell they sell the chocolate and then give the money to endangered species. So it was talking about lions, and it was saying, you know. So I don't read cereal boxes, I read chocolate bar wrappers. (laughs) So it was saying that a lion's roar can be heard for up to five miles. Yeah, that's really something. So, you know, the the lion is the king of beasts. The lion's roar is, you know, no other animal can match it. So they often talk of the Buddha as... um, you know, oh, in our thing, oh, lions amongst humans. Yeah. 
you know? Okay, in the, in the um, prayer of Samantabhadra. And uh, often they talk about the Buddha, um, you know, roaring the roar of a lion. Okay? And so the roar of the lion here, he's saying, is saying, I am the refuge of all beings who lack protectors. Okay? So how can the Buddha state, how can a Buddha state, I am the refuge of uh, for all beings who lack protectors. Yeah, we might say, gee, that sounds a little bit arrogant. Yeah, saying I'm the refuge. You know, he sounds just like Joe Blow that I saw in the New Age newspaper, you know, who says he's enlightened. Well, there's a difference here, okay, in that the Buddha really has the qualities, and so roaring the lion's war is stating the truth. It's not making something up. It's not bragging. It's saying something that's accurate for the benefit of sentient beings. So in the Pali Canon, there's uh, two sutras, the shorter sutra on the lion's roar and the great, the longer or great sutra on the lion's roar. In the shorter sutra of the lion's roar, the Buddha is uh, asking his disciples, you know, kind of, well, what, uh, when, when the non-Buddhists come to you, and question why you follow the you know the Buddha Dharma. What are you going to say to them? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because you can you can say our teachers great. Our teaching is great. Our practitioners are great. But those non-Buddhist wanderers, you know, are going to say the same thing. We have faith in our teacher, our teachings, our practitioners. Okay. And so the Buddha said, no, you know, the lion's roar in this case, why you can say that the Buddha Dharma is great is because the Buddha correctly identified the four kinds of clinging. Okay, he was able to, the four kinds of clinging, to sense pleasure, to afflicted views, to, um, to the, uh, a wrong view about what is ethical conduct and what is the path to enlightenment, and then to the view of, pers- of a personal identity. Okay, so the Buddha was the one who correctly identified what these four wrong clingings are. Yeah. Whereas the non-Buddhists often saw those four, you know, one or another, if not more, of those four clingings as something good. You know, I mean, ordinary people clinging to sensual pleasure, yeah, I'll sign up. I want that. We have plenty of clinging to sensual pleasure. Okay? Clinging to um, wrong views about what is ethical conduct, and what is the path to enlightenment? Oh, lots of people have tons of wrong views about that. Okay? Um, clinging on to all sorts of other views, you know, views of true existence. Yeah, we all do that. Clinging on to the view of a personal identity, a solid me that's truly existent. Yeah, we all do that. And many other faiths don't recognize these 
even as afflictions, as something to be abandoned. You know, many other faiths are founded on assertions of true existence, on assertions of there being a, a permanent soul or something that's really me. So here the Buddha was saying, you know, that the, the identifying these four clingings was the way that you could say the lion's roar, the, you know, of the Buddha identifying those teachings as supreme. That was the reason. In the, um, the great uh, sutra, uh, on the lion's roar, there had been one of Buddha's disciples who had lost faith in the Buddha because he saw all these other wanderers having having magical powers, and he said, "You know, Shakyamuni Buddha, you know, Shakyamuni doesn't do any of these things. You know, these other wanderers have all. You know, they can read people's minds, they can tell other lives, they can." you know, have all these psychic powers, they can pass through walls and go under the water, but, you know, Buddha can't do any of this because the Buddha deliberately restrained himself from showing any magical powers because he didn't want people to get the wrong idea and think that having those kind of powers was an indicative, an indication of uh, enlightenment because it's not. So this one disciple had lost faith in the Buddha and was going around town criticizing the Buddha. Saying, ah, you know, he doesn't have any psychic powers like all these other great wanderers. What does he know? So uh, it kind of put the Buddha in, in a little bit of a difficult position where he had to talk about some of the qualities of a, of a fully enlightened one. And so this was the discourse in which he described the ten powers of a Buddha and there are ten powers. I won't go into all of them now. They're talked about in both the the um, the, the Pali Canon and the Sanskrit Canon. Ten special powers, like being able to see past and future lives, being able to see where sentient beings will be reborn, being able to understand all the uh, intricacies of karma, being able to uh, know all the realms of existence plus nirvana. Yeah, knowing all the different elements and how they interrelate. So these kinds of powers. Uh, so the Buddha described those ten powers. He often de- he also described the four fearlessnesses of a Buddha, that a Buddha is completely fearless in, um, you know, proclaiming that he has no bias and um, prejudice against others. Fearless in proclaiming that he knows the end of. The end of dukkha, dukkha meaning the suffering and samsara. Okay, so, you know, the Buddha there went into all these descriptions of the various powers and fearlessnesses and knowledges of the Buddha. And that was his lion's roar. Okay? So, why does a Buddha give a lion's roar? You know, kind of stating the supremacy of the Dhamma that he taught and the supremacy of the true paths and true cessations, which, you know, are what identify uh, somebody as an Arya. Why did he, you know, or what made him talk about that? It was his great compassion. Okay? He didn't want sentient beings to be misled. So, you know, with great compassion, he declared these four kinds of clinging. He declared 
the various realizations of a fully enlightened one. Okay? So, that's, that's his lion's roar. And it was motivated by compassion for sentient beings. I forget. I can't remember. I will try and look it up. I can't remember if he came to his senses and apologized or if he went on with his wrong view. Because there's there's different stories, you know, different times in the sutras where the Buddha tries to correct somebody's wrong view. And sometimes the person realizes it and apologizes to the Buddha. And sometimes they're so stubborn, you know, they keep on with it even after the Buddha has given this whole sutra, a whole discourse explaining why that person's view was wrong. You know, some people can't see it and get very attached to their views. Okay, so we have a little bit of time for questions, a few minutes here. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's just a, I just hypothesize, but I think maybe the Buddhist lion's roar is the roar of his awareness that of, the, uh, of the way things work. And he brings oh, yeah, and, completely. And uh, yeah. when he does that, then there's a, a comprehension on the on the side of the people who aren't hearing it before because mm-hmm. it's a different voice than, than the normal voice. Mm, yeah. Okay, so a lion's roar is a different voice than the normal voice. So it wakes people up to the truth of what the Buddha is saying. Whereas before, maybe they just disregarded it. I think it's because the Buddha comes from a wisdom mind. Yeah. And Cultivating the wisdom mind that makes bodhicitta work effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, as for can you use, what are the afflicted views? Is that like clashes or? No. Um, views? In views. And in this, in the sixth, um, sometimes we talk about six root delusions. Mm-hmm. Um, Two of them are pinpointed specifically. Uh, uh, two of them are are two of the four clingings, and you know, in the 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 clinging to personal identity is one of the afflicted views, and clinging to wrong ethical conduct and the wrong path is another one, and then the others are lumped together in the other clinging of views. Any other questions or comments? Okay. So sit quietly for a minute or two and we'll dedicate. Try and remember the points from this talk so that when you uh, have silent meditation, you can go over them. And also, even if it's not a period of silent meditation, even you're walking around or just sitting looking at the beauty, try and think of the different things that you've heard and think about them in terms of your life and... uh, you know, so that you really understand them and they have an effect on your mind.